парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's episode is the sixth of seven events for Distant Friends and Intimate Enemies, the U.S. and Russia, the Fall 2020 Speaker Series at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies. The Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union was not just a battle between ideologies. It was also a technological race. The state that could produce the most advanced tech affirmed the superiority of its respective system. By the 1960s, cybernetics, and soon the creation of a national information network, became a key theater in the science race. As we know, the United States was successful. The American military developed the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network or ARPANET, which became the technological foundation for today's internet. But cybernetics had broader application and influenced economics, psychology, biology, and other human sciences. What vision did Soviet and American scientists have for cybernetics? And what role did cybernetics play in the Cold War contest? Here's Yekaterina Babintseva and Slava Gerovich to tell us more about the history of cybernetics. Ekaterina Babintseva is a Hickson Riggs Early Career Fellow in Science and Technology Studies at Harvey Mudd College. Her book project, Cyber Dreams of the Information Age, Learning with Machines in the Cold War United States and Soviet Union, examines how American and Soviet engineers, computer scientists, psychologists, and educators work to develop computational methods to educate American and Soviet citizens during the Cold War. Slava Gerovich is a lecturer in, in the history of mathematics at MIT. He's the author of several books, including From Newspeak to Cyberspeak, A History of Soviet Cybernetics, Voices of the Soviet Space Program, Cosmonauts, Soldiers, and Engineers Who Took the USSR Into Space, and Soviet Space Mythologies, Public Images, Private Memories, and the Making of a Cultural Identity. Here's Yekaterina Babintseva and Slava Gerovich. Um, just to start, you know, both of you study cybernetics and the history of computer technology from very two, you know, very different perspectives. So I thought I'd start by just having you outline what is the focus of your research. Uh, Yekaterina, you can start. Um, sure. So my research focuses on interdisciplinary work at the intersection of the history of computing and the history of mind sciences in the United States and the Soviet Union in the 60s and 70s. And um, what I argue is that despite uh, obvious political, economic and ideological differences, 
the United States and the Soviet Union articulated a shared vision of the human mind in the 60s and 70s. Um, the two countries both uh, came to see the human mind as an economic uh, resource that could be harnessed by computer technology. And I suggest that two factors um, really shaped this kind of vision of the human mind. The first factor was the state of the psychology of thinking during the Cold War. I'm, in my research, I show that in both countries, um, those psychologists who were concerned with human cognition and human thinking drew significantly on the information theory, on cybernetics, and on artificial intelligence. And it was those quantitative methods of analysis that really allowed um, Soviet and American scientists uh, to draw a comparison between the human mind and the computer and to say that the two were um, comparable. The other factor that I suggest uh, shaped this unique vision of the human mind was that both countries embraced the theory of scientific technical revolution at about the same time, but maybe the, the United States a little bit earlier in the 50s. And then it traveled to the Soviet Union in the 60s and especially 70s. And the, this theory of uh, scientific technical revolution was concerned with the social effects of digital technology. Um, and um, the people who, who created the theory were saying that um, ultimately the computerization of production would um, reduce the working class uh, because uh, all the work would be intellectual. And so what I'm saying is that both countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, became concerned with how you will um, raise this manpower required by this new emerging knowledge-based economies. And I'm also saying that um, both countries, uh, were the economies of both countries were characterized by large industrial systems. So both countries were concerned by raising the people who would manage those systems, but also the people who would innovate those systems. Um, and I focus on specific uh, computer and algorithmic technologies that, that were developed by Americans and the Soviets at this time. So in the United States, um, the University of Illinois created this teaching computer called Plata. Uh, Plata, like the name of a philosopher, except for it was an abbreviation, uh, which stood for Programmed Logic for Automated Teaching Operations. And Plata in the beginning was just created to facilitate road memorization, but very soon Plata developers became concerned with um, harnessing creative thinking in students. And they understood creativity as the ability to solve problems and to uh, create techno-scientific knowledge. And the same kind of creativity existed at about the same time in the Soviet Union. So uh, the Soviets uh, really considered the Plato computer to be the paragon of a teaching computer. And they tried their best to build something comparable. Um, but they were not really successful in that, uh, even though the theoretical work conducted for this teaching computer project was really remarkable. And I focus on the theory of algorithmic learning, which suggested that human problem solving and thinking generally could be analyzed in terms of logical structures. Um, and I argue that ultimately both the Plato computer and um, the Soviet work in the field of algorithmic learning contributed to the development of expert systems, which was the first approach to AI um, 
um, which uh, took form in the 60s. And then by the 90s, AI practitioners uh, kind of became less fond of it. And nowadays, the dominant approach to AI are neural networks. Let me uh, let me get let me get Slava in here too because you've given us a lot to lot to chew on. Uh, Slava, what is the what is the focus of your um, your work? Uh, I in my book uh, uh, from Newspeak to Cyberspeak, I focus on uh, the scientific community in the Soviet Union uh, from the late 1950s through uh, the late 70s, and. Uh, um, you would not normally think of these people as uh, computer scientists or uh, people who would uh, be related to cybernetics. Uh, this would be biologists, physiologists, economists, linguists, people in rather traditional academic disciplines. And I uh, look at their motivations. Why would they pick up the cybernetic language I call cyberspeak and uh, start using computer technology in their fields? And I look at the motivation beyond the purely intellectual interest and in a wider social factors such as career advancement, larger societal impact, and even a political agenda. And uh, uh, I looked at what uh, I termed the cybernetization of Soviet science, an attempt to use the cybernetic language and computer technology to transform this academic discipline, to make a transition from the Stalinist era to a less dogmatic and innovative uh, period of um, the 1960s and 70s. Now, both both of your research is dealing with cybernetics and, and, and dealing with them, in, in it's to me, in different aspects of it. I mean, Slava, you just mentioned the issue with, you know, this cybernization <laughs> or, uh, of, of Soviet sciences. And Ekaterina, you're really looking at this really inter interesting intersection between cybernetics and psychology. Uh, so, just to give us a sense of what is cybernetics? Uh, Slava, do you want to start? Uh, sure. Uh, cybernetics uh, is a rare case when the definition of the uh, discipline is given in the title of a book. It's a 1948 book by Norbert Wiener, Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine. Uh, Wiener worked uh, in the Department of Mathematics at MIT, where I now work. So it's kind of thrilling to walk the halls where he once walked in. And we have a sculptural winner in the department common room. So there is a bit of adulation there, uh, but it's done in the mathematician style with a lot of irony and self-deprecation, cultivating the image of winner as a kind of eccentric, absent-minded genius. So one of Wiener's eccentricities uh, from a mathematician's viewpoint was his interest in things outside mathematics. And uh, so he developed that theory in the 1940s based on the idea that living organisms, complex uh, machines and human society are all governed by the same mechanism of self-regulation, a negative feedback mechanism which notices the error as you move toward your goal and then works to reduce that error in the next step. As a result, the system can stay in balance or in equilibrium or homeostasis in physiological terms. So if this mechanism is broken, no feedback is received or it is distorted, then errors are amplified and the system goes into self-destruction, like a bridge collapsing from resonance or a handshaking in Parkinson's disease or, or the cytokine storm caused by COVID-19 when the immune system overreacts or for society when tensions in society grow to a point of civil war instead of being resolved. Uh, 
So for Wiener, uh, cybernetics was a way to unify all these phenomena under a single umbrella to develop a theory of all these self-regulation mechanisms to help uh, preserve balance uh, in, in organisms, uh, to build uh, self-regulating machines and to stabilize society as well. Uh, Katarina, how did, you know, at first the, the when Stalin was still alive in his final years, there was somewhat of a rejection or skepticism, at least ideologically, of cybernetics. So how did the Soviets understand uh, cybernetics and their adoption to, of it? Um, well, uh, all I can say about the adoption of cybernetics in the post-Stalinist uh, era is, um, I know it from Slava's amazing book, From Newspeak to Cyberspeak. Um, but so... Um, well, the real the push for the adoption of cybernetics uh, came from the scientists who uh, were convincing the uh, Soviet government that soon the use of uh, computers would be ubiquitous, and uh, banning uh, the research on cybernetics uh, wasn't uh, wasn't practical and wasn't rational, um, and so. Um, Yes, cybernetics was really associated, uh, tightly connected with the word computing um, in, in that context. Um, and computing research existed, um, but only in the sphere of the military. Uh, the civilian research couldn't engage with the questions of computing until the uh, uh, late 50s, early 1960s. Um, when when the uh, uh, Soviet scientists convinced the um, Soviet state that banning uh, civilian research in computing wasn't practical, um, Axel Berg, a very powerful figure in uh, Soviet science, uh, opened this powerful institution called the Council on Cybernetics um, uh, within uh, the Soviet Academy of Sciences. And as Slava has shown to all of us, uh, that institution was really responsible for the cybernetization of Soviet science, uh, the introduction of um, cybernetics methods of analysis into a variety of disciplines, beginning with biology and ending with psychology. Um, so, uh, but for me, uh, and I think Slava also mentions it in his book, uh, the crucial aspect of Soviet cybernetics is that the centrality of the concept of algorithm to it. Um, and that's what uh, really helpful in my research. I'm really showing how the concept of algorithm became so important for the work of psychologists and how algorithm became applicable to the ways humans think. Well, before we get into this, because this is fascinating, because you both deal with this, the application of uh, mathematics and algorithmic analysis to human sciences and the understanding of societies and humans. But before we get to that, I, you know, this event is called the Wired Cold War. Um, and so how does the Cold War context contribute to the development, but also the embrace of, of cybernetics? Uh, Ekaterina? Um, yes. Uh, so, well, I think that the history of cybernetics uh, gives us really interesting insights uh, into um, the Cold War exchanges in the field of science and technology. Um, well, first of all, um, the formation of the Council on Cybernetics was possible because of, because of the Soviet scientists reading works by Wiener, um, and also uh, 
of course, I should say that uh, Soviets were uh, concerned with computing and cybernetic ideas uh, back in the even in the 1920s when uh, physio Soviet physiologist Bernstein uh, was uh, thinking of the human body as a homeostatic system. Uh, but those ideas uh, lacked some kind of institutional grounding. And that institutional grounding is created, in my opinion, and by institutional grounding, I mean the Council on Cybernetics. And I think it was created partially out of this um, Cold War anxiety about overcoming, about suppressing uh, American science. So if Americans are so invested in computing, then we should do the same thing in the Soviet Union. Um, and um, as a historian of psychology and computing, I see um, a lot of these exchanges in the field of cognitive psychology. And cognitive psychology, one could call it a cybernetics inflected kind of psychology, because it really relied on mathematical and algorithmic uh, methods of analysis. And um, this field of cognitive psychology also uh, is shaped in the Soviet Union partially because of those same anxieties about surpassing uh, American uh, science. So, yeah, I think that the history of cybernetics uh, really, um, really uh, helps us understand um, some of the Cold War exchanges in the field of sciences. And I also, and I also want to say one more thing, that um, I don't think that it was just the Soviet Union who were adopting all these American ideas um, about computing, about cognitive psychology. Uh, my research shows that those ideas actually traveled back uh, to the United States. Um, uh, one of the central figures of my research, Lev Landa, and I'm happy to talk about him more a little later, uh, his work gained a lot of attention in the United States. And American psychologists recognized that Landa actually uh, reinvented some of the approaches uh, to human thinking that were shaped by American cognitivists. Uh, Slava, uh, what is your view on the, the, the Cold War context and its contributions for uh, cybernetics development? I think we should start with Wiener's vision for what cybernetics would do in the Cold War context. Because he believed cybernetics would uh, help people realize how important it is to have an open society, a society in which uh, information is not controlled, is not manipulated, that these feedback loops in, in society should operate freely. Otherwise, if, uh, if, if information is tightly controlled by the government, then the system it would likely go out of balance and uh, uh, into the mode of self-destruction. So that's according to cybernetic theory. And uh, um, Wiener was very concerned with the situation both in the United States and in the Soviet Union in the 1940s. And he said, well, the, the, the Russians have their uh, Lavrenti Beria, Stalin's henchman, and we have our McCarthy. So, so it's very similar on both sides. He saw governments trying to uh, control information flows, manipulate information, uh, manipulate public opinion. So he thought that that was self-destructing for a society. Uh, so he, he was hoping that the cybernetic theory would educate people about the importance of, uh, uh, of these free information exchanges in the society. But then see what happened with that theory in the actual context. In the US context, there is a wonderful book by Paul Edwards, The Closed World on the cybernetic discourse in the Cold War 
where he shows how American scientists specifically use cybernetic techniques, uh, operations research, for example, to uh, make the Cold War uh, a kind of a calculable world. They created a Cold War mindset in which uh, the Cold War was a game you could play with an effective strategy. So you could rely on these techniques to essentially better manipulate information to defeat your opponent. So that's how they interpreted Wiener's contribution. And in the Soviet context, uh, cybernetics rather became a tool in the hands of a scientist who had their own agenda, often quite different from the agenda of the Soviet government, because they had an agenda of reforming the Soviet uh, science system, getting rid of the Stalinist legacy, uh, revamping their disciplines, arming them with this new cyberspeak and computer technology, trying to introduce new innovative theories under the umbrella of cybernetics. For, so for them, it was a kind of a liberating tool. Uh, th this is one of the things I, I find really fascinating as someone who knows almost nothing about the sciences, but is very interested in, in society, that you know, the human scientists, whether it be economics, uh, in your case, the Ekaterina psychology, uh, and other, you know, disciplines that deal with society and humans, uh, see promise in this, you know, the, in the promise of cybernetics and, and their work. So, um, you talked a little bit about it, Ekaterina, but I'd like you to address it more. So what attracted psychologists to cybernetics? Um, yeah, I think um, there was a whole gamut of reasons uh, that made Soviet psychologists attracted in cybernetics. And I think I will begin with the question of prestige. Um, as I mentioned, the Council on Cybernetics in the 60s was a very powerful and prestigious institution. And, um, and generally, the... Um, uh, mathematical and algorithmic methods of analysis were also considered to be um, analytically uh, rigorous methods, rational methods, uh, the methods that would allow any discipline uh, to get on par with their hard exact sciences such as physics and mathematics. And so um, Soviet psychologists like Landa became interested in cybernetics uh, because they really wanted uh, to, to be considered uh, big science, uh, the kind of science that solves this large uh, military-industrial questions. Um, I should note that, um, well, you, you definitely know that the Soviet Union was a very centralized country, uh, and uh, so was uh, the Soviet academic research. Um, the central institution for Soviet civilian science was the Academy of Sciences in Moscow. It directed uh, most of the civilian research happening in the Soviet Union. And so um, psychology wasn't represented in uh, the Institute of Psychology and I'm sorry, psychology wasn't represented in the Academy of Sciences until 1972. Until 1972, psychology was considered to be a pedagogical discipline, and psychologists worked at this lower rank institution, the Academy of Pedagogical Sciences. And so it was uh, Axel Berg, the director of the Council on Cybernetics, who really convinced 
um, Soviet ministers and um, uh, the uh, president of the Academy of Sciences that uh, psychology should be a part of the, this larger, bigger Academy of Sciences. And when the Institute of Psychology was opened at the Academy of Sciences, uh, this, uh, all of the research that was conducted there was concerned with the mathematical modeling of uh, nervous system, of the brain, of the mind. So I think the central reason for the Soviet psychologists being fascinated um, with the cybernetics is the matter of prestige and um, uh, finding their own niche in the Soviet big science research. Uh, Slava, this, this adoption of cybernetics, is it, you know, do you also see it as this, and of course you also deal with the history of mathematics, so I'm, I imagine there's lots of intersection with this, you know, Cold War science of, uh, of quantifying society to try to understand human behavior in terms of numbers? Well, uh, it, it's indeed kind of a tradition in, uh, um, in uh, social sciences when they are used by governments to resort to quantitative methods because they're easily kind of better understood and easily presented and explained and better managed. So when we go to statistics, origins in statistics in the 19th century, that's, that's when the government started requesting it. So, um, so in, in the US, indeed, uh, the government uh, and the military drove that uh, interest in using uh, computational methods uh, and generally computing in various social disciplines. In the Soviet Union, uh, it, it was the scientists themselves that who, who had to convince the government that these methods first, uh, you know, had, had the right to exist. And, and second, they, uh, so they should be allowed to be studied. And, and, and then that they should, uh, the government should listen to some of the advice based on the computational methods. Because the practice prior to that was that decision-making in the Soviet government was heavily uh, first ideological and second based on kind of a backdoor negotiations, power play and things like that. So any uh, quantitative methods that would uh, make decision making process explicit would undermine all these uh, uh, backstage negotiations. So, so that was really a challenge to the existing system. It was what, what is kind of disruptive technology in a way. So uh, the Soviet scientists, uh, therefore, not only had a kind of in intellectual interest in using these models, but they also had an agenda for disrupting some of the uh, existing patterns of Soviet uh, management and administration with these new techniques. Is this why a lot of the, a lot of the at least how I understand the history, cybernetics look to uh, be applied to the economy to try to get through some of the bottlenecks and uh, backdoor <laughs> uh, patronage that you're talking about? Yes, exactly. I mean, one of the huge initiatives that the Soviet cyberneticians put forward was to optimize the functioning of the uh, national economy uh, on that national scale so that we would collect all the data, economic data, then we process it with big computers, and then we give uh, assignments to each enterprise, what they should produce and where they should ship it, and that would optimize functioning on the national scale. And, and this was a very controversial proposal because it, they, it, they took 
uh, away uh, the control of information from both local managers uh, who you know, could decide what they share with the central authorities and what they didn't share, maybe some wiggle room for them. And they also took responsibilities and, uh, and control over decision-making from the central authorities who now had power whom to assign what kind of plant production quotas and so forth. It all was delegated now to this inanimate machine controlled by these, you know, eggheads who, uh, you know, uh, had no ideological responsibilities and had all these mathematical models in mind. So that was a serious challenge to the, uh, uh, to the existing Soviet system of doing things in the economy. Now, now both of you, uh, you know, Certain individuals are really key for the development of cybernetics in your respective uh, focuses. Uh, and, and for each of you, for Yekaterina uh, Lev Lada, you've already, Landa, you already uh, mentioned him. Um, and uh, for, for Slava, Viktor Glushkov is really, really key in terms of the development of cybernetics. So who were these men and, and what was their contribution? Uh, Yekaterina, talk, talk more about Landa. Yes, yeah, so um, Lev Landa was a Soviet psychologist. Um, he um, earned the Soviet analog of a PhD degree in 1955 from the uh, Institute of Psychology at the Academy of Pedagogical Sciences. And he continued working there um, until 1972. Um, and uh, Lev Landa was... Um, even though he uh, was a part of the Institute of Psychology at the Academy of Pedagogical Sciences, intellectually he was much more interested in cybernetics and he had this uh, strong intellectual connections to the Council on Cybernetics. And I would even call him a protege of the director of the Council, Axel Berg, uh, because Berg uh, tried to convince uh, the Soviet authorities that Landa should be working at the Academy of Sciences, and but uh, it never happened. Uh, the Soviet bureaucratic system just didn't recognize uh, psychology as belonging to the Academy of Sciences. And so in at the Academy of Pedagogical Sciences, Landa was heading this laboratory of uh, programmed instruction. So programmed instruction initially was uh, created as a pedagogical approach, a behaviorist pedagogical approach, and it was created by uh, behaviorist Skinner. Um, uh, and Skinner uh, traveled to the Soviet Union in 1960 with a, a series of lectures on programmed instruction. And so what, uh, what Skinner did is that um, he built the special teaching machines that represented uh, material and small chunks of information and the student would get feedback on um, answering questions related to that material. And Skinner was saying that uh, that feedback um, uh, allowed to make the learning process rational and controllable, that machines could uh, control uh, human learning much better than teachers because they could provide feedback on every little tiny step. And so the Soviets became really fascinated by this method. Um, but they had problems with the behavioral approach um, uh, because behaviorists kind of were saying that animals and humans um, are the same things. They uh, respond to the environment. Um, uh, they respond to the stimuli coming from the environment. Uh, and th that was problematic in the Soviet Union. Um, 
So, uh, and Landa, he reinvented the theory of programmed instruction into the theory of algorithmic learning. Uh, he said that this, this concept of feedback, which was central to Skinnerian behaviorism, um, was uh, the concept of feedback was also central to cybernetics. And he was saying that uh, computers could provide that feedback and shape human learning. But what he was mostly concerned with is not just teaching students how to uh, regurgitate the information that they just learned, but how to enhance students' problem-solving abilities. That was his goal from the very beginning. And he was saying that um, uh, naturally the human mind is logical, um, but not uh, all the human beings uh, know how to exercise that ability. And so we should teach students this logical methods of thinking um, so to tune them into this efficient problem solvers. And he created the entire typology of all kinds of possible uh, problems that one can encounter and all kind of possible mental operations responsible for the solution of those problems. And one final thing that I will say about him is that in 1972, Lander had to leave the Soviet Union um, because his son Boris, uh, who was the founder of the Moscow chapter of uh, Human Rights uh, Amnesty International, um, uh, well, because of Boris's activities, but also because Boris was uh, got married to an American woman. So because of all that, uh, Landa encountered a lot of uh, problems. His uh, professorship position was lowered to a mere research fellow. So he, he was forced to leave the Soviet Union and he came to the United States where he opened his uh, business consultancy company and he uh, used the work that he uh, conducted in the Soviet Union to train American managers how to solve problems. Slava, what about Viktor Glushkov? Uh, Glushkov was an outstanding mathematician who uh, very early, basically almost in college, uh, made a huge mathematical um, discovery. He proved uh, one version of the fifth uh, uh, problem uh, formulated by Hilbert. So he made a name for himself in the mathematical world and quickly made a career in the Soviet science establishment. And uh, on that wave of interest of cybernetics, he uh, managed to uh, get support for creating an institute of cybernetics in, in Kiev, Ukraine. So I should note that there was no institute of cybernetics in Moscow because it's, it, it was an established academic environment there. Very, it was very difficult to squeeze in a new discipline. Uh, but in, in Kiev, there was more room for that. So, so Glushkov became director of the Institute of Cybernetics in Kiev, and he used that platform to establish broad contacts with the industry by building computers for them, uh, with the Soviet defense uh, sector by designing information management system for the defense, and ultimately with the top Soviet leadership by offering the idea of a nationwide computer network that would uh, link all economic units in the country and would optimize production on the na national scale. So for him, that was an opportunity to uh, get to the national level and to uh, potentially become the head of an agency, of a central agency in Moscow that would supervise the construction and then operation of that computer network. Uh, so that vision was predicated on the idea, essentially on the cybernetic vision of the national economy as a cybernetic system. 
that uh, should be kept in equilibrium through feedback provided by that nationwide computer network. Um, and uh, like you know, many mathematicians, he had that illusion that you could formalize a, 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 a social problem and then solve it for, with formal means and then you know, easily implement it and here is a solution. Uh, but very quickly he ran into all sorts of political complications with this proposal because again, he stepped on too many toes of people already having control over sectors of the economy or decision-making in this area, which he now proposed to grab from them. So his proposal was endlessly reviewed, revised, resubmitted over essentially 20 years throughout the 60s and 70s until it gradually kind of withered away into a, a system that would, would support the existing decision-making organization. So instead of a system that would reform, radically reform the Soviet operation of the economy and who decides and how, that was a, a data management system that would provide existing decision-making with uh, data to support their decisions. So instead of uh, something that would challenge the status quo, it was turned into a tool for supporting the status quo. Yekaterina, uh, what about the American side? What, what uh, interests and, and applications did uh, American scientists see for cybernetics? Once again, uh, I think uh, I can speak uh, about the application of cybernetics to uh, psychology. Um, and um, I'm going to speak about this uh, cybernetics inflected field of psychology, cognitive psychology. Um, and I think um, what... Uh, the motivation behind adopting these mathematical methods of analysis and applying them to um, the human mind was that um, behaviorism, which I already mentioned when I was talking about Skinner, was really a predominant approach to studying the human self until the early 1960s. Um, so um, behaviorists like Skinner um, were also positivist scientists. They were saying that, uh, well, we can study only the things that we can observe, that we can actually see, but how do you see the mind? And so they were really brushing off the idea that you can s study the human mind. Um, and so the, what mathematical methods of analysis allowed cognitive psychologists to do is that um, they allowed to to create the models of the human of the human mental operations, the human uh, the human memory, the human learning, and these mathematical models served as sort of like a um, an artifact, an object that pointed to the fact that the human mind existed. So if we can model something, there we go, it exists, and we can study it and we can experiment with it. So um, to sum up. Um, um, cybernetics computing allowed uh, cognitive psychologists to really establish uh, cognitive psychology as a field and to to challenge uh, the behavioral approach. And, and Slava, what, what can you add to the, the American uh, adaptations of cybernetics? Where did, where did Norberg's ideas go in America? Well, uh, in contrast to the Soviet case where uh, cybernetics was really an inspiration for a a wide range of academic scientists in a variety of disciplines. Uh, cybernetics in the US context uh, very quickly lost its initial appeal across disciplines. 
uh, scientists learned about cybernetic techniques, learned about mathematical models, learned about uh, uh, computer simulations. And then they started using them in their discipline, but no longer calling them cybernetic. So there was no cybernetic psychology or cybernetic biology or cybernetic physiology in the United States as it was in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, these were the names for these disciplines. So in, because there was a, a, a reason for legitimation for retaining these titles, even though they may not have shared the same models, but they shared cyberspeak as a legitimizing language. In the United States, um, you know, academics had access to computers, uh, while the Soviet academics did not. So uh, you would often see in memoirs of American scientists, uh, uh, in some way in psychology department, they, we got this computer, we didn't know what to do with it. We started sort of thinking about applications, what to do with it. So uh, in, in the Soviet context, it was mostly theoretical work. In the American context, it was really a, a practical uh, simulation building, simulation running, something that they technology they wanted to, to uh, make use of. Um, so uh, if, if, if the ambitions of Soviet scientists were often rather global to transform the entire discipline, to transform how economy operates, the ambitions of American scientists were, you know, let's play with this machine and see what it does. And, you know, maybe something will come out of this. So this this goes to uh, something and something that Yekaterina uh, mentioned in the beginning, and that is the vision, at least on the vision of uh, of society or thinking about the future is is there we're going to move into a post industrial world, uh, both in the United States and in the Soviet Union. So uh, Intellectual labor will become the primary form of, uh, you know, ac economic activity. Um, so, what what type of society did people who use cybernetics in both the United States and the Soviet Union? What kind of society did they imagine a post-industrial society would be? I think that the visions developed by American and Soviet scientists were quite similar. And they were similar because um, both scientists envisioned the society in which um, efficiency uh, would be the biggest value. Um, and um, the uh, historical actors whom I'm studying uh, were interested in um, optimizing and making human thinking and human problem solving efficient. And problem solving was this crucial concept for both Soviet and American psychologists because they believed that problem solving stands behind creating new knowledge, techno-scientific knowledge. Um, and, and problem solving therefore stands behind the creative thinking. You are creative if you can solve problems. Um, and so, um, uh, Yes, uh, optimization, uh, efficiency were these uh, crucial uh, characteristics of these societies that American and Soviet scientists envisioned. Um, but I also wanted to speak um, a little bit about uh, the role of humans in this society and how my actors envisioned them. And um, so I mentioned that um, creativity was important, uh, both in the Soviet Union and in the United States. Um, but I'm really surprised with uh, how that creativity was um, 
um, the, the training of creative thinking was implemented in the software of the Plato computer. Uh, how that creativity was simulated in the models of human thinking developed by Lev Lander. And what I suggest is that both the software created for the Plato and those models of human thinking created by Lander, um, they defined creativity as um, some sort of uh, um, autonomous thinking within otherwise rule-bound environment. So what I think um, my actors were really trying to do is to teach humans how to follow strict logical algorithmic rules and um, perform some limited uh, circumscribed degree of creativity only in limited particular cases. And thus, I think that uh, both um, American and Soviet scientists really uh, erased the people who would be able to perform a pretty narrow function in this world and who would just uh, solve their problems uh, set by these two technocratic countries who wouldn't challenge anything. Because when we think of creativity, we, we think of many different things. And we usually think of something that would challenge the system, that would change the paradigm using Kuhn's vocabulary. Uh, but I think that the um, uh, people who were exposed to the Plata or to Landa's algorithmic um, theory techniques um, were really supposed to, uh, to just support the system, to make the system function as it is. Uh, Slava, what can you add to the, the vision of society did the people you've looked, the sciences you've looked at uh, imagine? Soviet cyberneticians envisioned a society in which uh, computers would free humans not only from manual labor, but also from routine mental work. And uh, they envisioned that humans would perform only really interesting, creative tasks that computers cannot do. So that was their kind of a vision and uh, uh, part of the rhetoric that people like Glushkov used trying to convince the Soviet government to uh, approve his project. Uh, but the, the kind of a uh, framework within which they would place these opportunities for creative thinking was to uh, create a huge system uh, controlled by the government in which every uh, employee would, would be told what to do by this overall organization. So it, it is uh, the creativity that was supposed to be uh, articulated in this environment was still very much controlled by a very similar Soviet type of a hierarchical organization, only now kind of computerized. So um, uh, in the US, uh, it was more of a, a bottom-up approach when, you know, here is little human sitting at, you know, his or her computer, what they can do to uh, make their own tasks easier for things they do, uh, uh, how they could communicate better with computers, how could they process their own data with computers. So it's not the uh, plan that comes from above, but it's a, it's a, it's a need for that comes from below. And, uh, and the vision that uh, uh, American enthusiasts of computing and cybernetics had in, in the 50s and early 60s was that kind of a human-machine symbiosis, a cyborg, a type of a kind of post-human entity in which practically all human communications would be mediated by computers 
and uh, all humans and machines would form inextricable entities with meshed goals. So, I mean, you can decide for yourself which region, <laughs> you know, came to be realized in today's world. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you see uh, parallels to what uh, Katerina said about how it the, it each system it, it's I mean, this is a bit of interpretation on my part, but literally creating a, a human to a human technocrat to be within the system rather than to rather than make it more efficient rather than, say, uh, challenging it. I mean, definitely when uh, when scientists thought about applications of these ideas in a specific context, they thought about uh, projects that they could essentially sell to to a, a someone, uh, and and the higher efficiency is is a huge selling point. So um, so on the one hand, indeed, efficiency was something that would sell a theory. But on the other hand, particularly in the Soviet context, uh, what they had in mind is, is essentially a disruptive impact on the system. When you would uh, arm a, a computer user with tools that would uh, potentially uh, give more control to the user overflows of information and maybe change the way information is operating in Soviet society. So that's why computers were often called the kind of a, you know freedom machines or something that would that would create their own flows of information independent of official uh, channels. So that's why in it, you know people started printing some as dot papers on computer printers and and using emails for to spread information, particularly during the you know August nineteen ninety one attempted coup. So computers became a, a, a world of its own with its own opportunities within the Soviet system that were potentially undermining the, the hierarchical structures that the Soviet government imposed. You know, one of the big major outcomes of the cybernetic research is, of course, the internet, which we all use and are using at this very moment. Um, but I'd like to broaden, instead of having you just speak about why the United States was successful in, in developing the foundations of what would be the Internet and, and why the, in the Soviet Union they fell short, um, I'd like to get your opinion of how do you evaluate the successes and failures of the, these sciences in your, in your respective research? Well, speaking of a, the idea of a nationwide computer network, which would resemble you know, today's Internet, the Soviets came up with that idea in the late 1950s, and first they, they wanted to build a double-use network for the military and the civilians, and the military definitely were not interested in that. So uh, then Glushkov came on board with that idea. That was the idea of a civilian network. And uh, uh, he advocated that network, for, as I said, for 20 years at various levels, trying to implement it, and ultimately, Although some parts of that vision were were implemented, overall it was very far from his original vision. the The system was not open, was not really the kind of a feedback system that would make a cybernetic uh, uh, society uh, balanced. Uh, while the internet was driven originally as an ARPANET network uh, created by funded by the Department of Defense in the U.S. It was created uh, for small tasks, you know, by users to level 
um, computation load among various in university computer centers, then uh, to exchange data, then to communicate, maybe send emails. And then uh, it turned out that it's a hugely efficient uh, communication tool and data sharing tool. So when e-commerce came on board, it took off. So uh, the internet, the development of the internet was driven by the users. Uh, there was no government imposing the sort of mandating people to use internet. Uh, uh, the government was initially providing opportunities, but then business made huge investments and the, the thing developed because it was profitable to participate in it and to use it. Well, in the Soviet case, uh, the only the only way Glushkov envisioned the internet could the Soviet network could operate would be if it was created by the government, funded by the government, and uh, built by the government, and every user would be told what to do by the government in how to use that network, and and so that vision that was formed as a result of essentially Soviet upbringing and he couldn't really think it in in, in other terms was. I believe fundamentally contradictory to the cybernetic idea of self-regulation. So what the kind of cybernetic systems that he envisioned was, was internally, I think, flawed because it violated some of the tenets of cybernetics. It did not really involve an organic growth based on feedback. It, it, was, it was a vision of a, a top-down imposed hierarchical system. Katarina, how do you evaluate the, the successes and failures? Yes. Um, so once again, I will speak uh, um, about the um, successes and failures of this um, algorithmic learning and uh, cybernetics and fluctuate psychology. Um, well, um, I think that um, I also see a contradiction, a contradiction in Landa's work. Um, and... Um, Landa, so uh, Slava just mentioned that computers in the Soviet Union were thought of as these freedom machines by the people who advanced the cybernetics movement. Um, and um, I think Landa kind of shared that vision. Uh, and he, uh, and he, he was generally interested in the questions of freedom. And I think the fact that his son was the founder of the uh, Moscow chapter of Amnesty International, uh, was, he was a dissident also, says that perhaps those ideas about the freedom um, uh, were very prominent in Landa's family. Um, but so Landa wrote a lot about how do you, how do you simulate algorithmically um, freedom. How do you offer freedom to the thinker when you write these algorithmic prescriptions for problem solving? And so he was he was really concerned with that, and he was saying that freedom is essential to creative thinking. But then, um, but that's what Landa was envisioning, and that's what he was saying. But when we look at the implementation of his work, and his work really gained momentum in the United States when he was uh, training American managers, he was saying that he would train a, a novice into an expert in like a couple of weeks. Um, and then when his um, algorithmic theory of learning, that typology of problems and mental operations was used in the design of expert systems, expert systems that simulate um, expert thinking in a very narrow uh, domain of knowledge. So when we look at the implementation of his work, we really see that um, uh, 
they had little to do with creativity in a way that really challenged something that really produced something new um so i think that was could be interpreted as perhaps as a failure a failure because uh, landa's idealistic uh, concern with freedom and creativity turned out uh this idealistic concern led to this uh, work that really just trained the american middle managers how to solve bureaucratic problems um but uh but i should still say that i, I mentioned that uh, the council on psychology was joined by this institute uh, sorry the the academy of sciences was joined by this institute of psychology which was concerned with cognitive psychology primarily so i think that perhaps could be interpreted as a success soviet scientists did really succeed in uh convincing uh, the Soviet authorities, how psychology could contribute to the big science research. Uh, here's a question uh, uh, from the chat, and 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 it was it's been mentioned a little bit so far, but I think it deserves a lot more attention. and And the question is, uh, what what was there any kind of transfer of cybernetic technology from the United from America or Europe to the Soviet Union? And and I would suggest, like, I would add to have that this answer broadened out to you know, exchanges in general. Well, if if by cybernetic technology we uh, we understand not just cybernetic theories, but also say computer technology, um, uh, these transfers were complicated by export restrictions, so the Cold War restrictions. Though the Soviets uh, did manage to circumvent that through various third countries when. Uh, uh, American or Western, other Western corporations would sell their computer to a, a middleman, say, in Finlandia, and then uh, the Finnish middleman would sell it to a firm in Bulgaria, and then the firm in Bulgaria would sell it to the Soviet users. So, uh, so the Soviets did acquire, um, uh, at least they tried to acquire the latest American computers and often uh, managed to do that and then try to uh, copy some of them. And they did copy uh, the IBM uh, 360 series. It uh, uh, launched the uh, unified series of computers in the Soviet Union. So, uh, so there was a serious attempt to uh, study and duplicate some of the American technological achievements in the area. Mm, uh, but at the same time, I should stress that this, uh, this should not be viewed solely as a Soviet kind of a um, attempt to uh, uh, to uh, capitalize on American uh, technologies to uh, build up the Soviet military might. Some of these borrowings were by academic scientists who really had their own goals in mind trying to influence their own government in, in maybe direction of liberal reforms. So it, it's not necessarily kind of a, a borrowing with a conservative agenda. Some of this borrowing could be with this reformist agenda. So some of these computers that, uh, or techniques that the Soviet borrowed were part of that reformist drive by Glushkov and, and other cybernetics enthusiasts. So while uh, the government may have had very narrow uh, military goals uh, in mind, Soviet scientists who actually worked with these borrowed technologies may have had their own goals in mind. 
yes. So in my own research, um, I actually um, came across with the Soviet attempt, uh, not attempt, I think it was just a promise actually, uh, to purchase 96,000 Plata computers uh, from uh, Control Data Corporation. Uh, beginning 1972, Control Data Corporation um, held all the non-exclusive rights on the Plata computer because this corporation um, uh, gave its uh, CDC uh, computers to the University of Illinois, and Plata was essentially connected to those CDC computers. And so, um, yes, um, um, and uh, that promise was made under the uh, um, agreement on the cooperation in science and technology signed by Nixon and Brezhnev in 72. Um, uh, CDC wanted to sell much more technology to uh, the Soviet Union, and there was a huge scandal in the society. Americans were sending really angry letters to the CEOs of uh, CDC saying that they uh, just equipped the Soviet Union to destroy uh, the United States, but that's, you know, the public perception of what was happening. Um, and ultimately, the government, the uh, American government allowed the CDC to um, uh, to sell and demonstrate uh, only the uh, those computers that were connected to the plata, and also uh, CDC promised that uh, those computers wouldn't be sold for cash. Um, CDC actually CDC and Soviets were promising the CDC that what would ultimately happen is that they, that they would open this pedagogical computer center in Moscow where Americans would work on the hardware, no, no, the Soviets would work on the hardware, but they would learn how to create the hardware from the Americans. And the Americans would learn all the theoretical work, um, including programming and the modeling of human cognition from the Soviets. But that was um, uh, just a vision promises it never happened what happened is ha happened is that plato was demonstrated um in moscow in the mid 70s and uh, the soviet union acquired three plato computers and that's it uh, the rest 90 something thousand plato computers remained in the united states so that's their uh, kind of um one of the attempts to transfer uh, cybernetic technology hmm. Uh, here's another question from the chat, and this is something that we've been, it's been talked about a bit in our discussion today, but it, this is a way to maybe focus it some. And the question is, did any of the actors or researchers um, in, in your respective fields uh, consider themselves humanists in, in any way, or, or was there a place for a psychological, I mean, philosophical humanism in their worldviews and research. I, I think you've both touched on that a bit, but if you could just focus and elaborate some, uh, you, Katharina. Um, yes, I I still wonder if uh, Landa would could could call himself a humanist. Um, I never came across with this word, uh, but he, he he probably could have. Um, um, yeah, because he was so concerned with the question of freedom, and I think that concern also had some political shade, but that's my guess. Um, it's not a fact. Um, uh, but once again, um, so what happens when you bring all this um, humanistic uh, beliefs and convictions uh, into, into a computer system when you try to uh, ascribe those beliefs uh, into, into a program. 
uh, to what extent uh, the computer program is actually resistant uh, to those ideas, to what extent it is just a, something that controls rather than allows for freedom. Um, and in the United States, uh, cognitive psychologists definitely considered themselves humanists. Uh, they believed that behavioral approach is so reductive, you just say that uh, humans, uh, uh, human nature is like animal nature, it's dependent on the environment, it's irrational. Um, and definitely, uh, yes, they believed they, they were the humanists. And again, it's interesting how this comparison between the computer and the mind was used uh, to advance this humanist agenda, humanist approach to the human self. Well, I think th this question should be placed in the context of post-Stalin debates uh, in, uh, in the social sciences and humanities between the, uh, the older school of, of Stalin-era science, which was heavily ideological and dogmatic, uh, and, uh, 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 and, and used kind of Marxist cliches uh, in a very dogmatic way, and the new cohort who tried to reanimate these disciplines and to uh, uh, view humans as more kind of multifaceted uh, entities. And uh, ironically, they made humans more multifaceted by uh, using formal methods, by essentially formalizing what humans do. Uh, for example, in uh, uh, cybernetic linguistics, there were all sorts of formal methods for evaluating uh, I don't know, information context, uh, uh, content in, in, in a text or uh, the, the amount of new information in the text. There was the whole fashion of these types of studies of texts, including artistic texts, with uh, computers, with mathematical ma models, uh, you know, calculating the entropy of a text, things like that. So even even evaluating the the quality of poetry, for example, by mm, the degree of unpredictability uh, of a, of a po poetic line. If it's very predictable, then it's obviously uh, you know trite and, and and banal. It's not interesting. If it's unpredictable, then it carries more information content and therefore is better poetry. So there was an attempt by cyberneticians or some of these scholars in these, uh, in these fields to use um, the cybernetic language and some of these techniques to challenge more dogmatic vision of, uh, of uh, human activity. Uh, and to ironically use this, you know, formal tools to uh, liberate uh, um, the vision of a human from more dogmatic vision of the Stalin era. What do you want people to walk away with from reading your your work and your research? Uh, and and take a, you know what what should we take away from the subjects that you study, Yekaterina? That's a, a difficult um, but wonderful question. I think, um, so I'm, um, one of the questions that is really important to me in my research, and I mentioned it uh, a lot of times already today, is, the, is how, uh, how can you simulate creativity uh, computationally and how you can harness creativity with uh, computer software. Um, 
And so what I think uh, uh, people can walk away with after reading my future book is um, to what extent uh, this notion of creativity as something that uh, sustains the system, as something that is so tightly connected to the production of techno-scientific knowledge, to what extent that notion of creativity still dominates our world. uh, contemporary computer companies uh, always insist that what they do is uh, their creative kind of work. Uh, programmers do creative kind of work. Uh, CEOs of uh, high-tech companies do creative kind of work. Um, and um, we, we kind of tend to devaluate uh, the kind of labor that is considered to be, that doesn't fall into this technocratic paradigm of creativity. That kind of work is irrelevant um, because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't innovate, it doesn't produce technology, it doesn't bring economic value. And I think that this kind of definition of creativity was really articulated during the Cold War both in the Soviet Union, but maybe not in the Soviet Union, but a particular circle of uh, scientists, including Landa, and in the United States. Yes, I mean, what message do you walk away with from my work? I, I suggest that you don't walk away from my work, you keep reading it. Uh, so, uh, uh, but really a lesson I learned from what I've studied is that um, the same theory in different uh, national contexts and different political contexts may play out very, very differently. Uh, Wiener thought of cybernetics as a kind of liberating tool that would, uh, you know, make our societies open and open up channels of communication. And it was used during the Cold War as a tool for uh, making the world calculable and, and the kind of a chess game uh, on the international stage or it was used by Soviet scientists in a totally different way that Wiener never envisioned that, that it would go into you know, genetics or things like that. So um, uh, in specific uh, historical circumstances, uh, we, have to, uh, we have to look at the flexibility and really pliability of scientific ideas as they are being adopted and used by, by scientists uh, to advance their own goals. So a scientific theory does not determine its own path. It doesn't determine its own interpretation. Um, so it, it's always interesting to look at, uh, at humans who use this science and uh, how they use it and why and what they can do with it. That was Yekaterina Babinseva and Slava Gerovich. Yekaterina Babinseva is a Hickson Riggs Early Career Fellow in Science and Technology Studies at Harvey Mudd College. Her book project, Cyber Dreams of the Information Age, Learning with Machines in the Cold War United States and Soviet Union, examines how American and Soviet engineers, computer scientists, psychologists, and educators work to develop computational methods to educate American and Soviet citizens during the Cold War. Slava Gerovich is a lecturer in the history of mathematics at MIT. He's the author of several books, including From Newspeak to Cyberspeak, A History of Soviet Cybernetics, Voices of the Soviet Space Program, Cosmonauts, Soldiers, and Engineers Who Took the USSR into Space, and Soviet Space Mythologies, Public Images, Private Memories, and the Making of a Cultural Identity. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast.
The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. South America, Europe, North America, Asia. Stop the cybers. Stop the cybers. Stop the cybers. Stop the cybers.